You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast. And today on the show, I am talking to Aura Nadrich. Aura is a mindfulness, meditation, and transformational teacher. She is the founder and president of the Institute for Transformational Thinking and the author of Says Who and the new book, Live True. Aura's two decades of training and practice as both a life coach and certified mindfulness meditation instructor has helped thousands of people overcome the blocks and hindrances of limited and negative thinking so they can live their lives as their most real, authentic selves. Today, in this episode, we talk about mindfulness, how it can impact and change your lives, and the easiest, most accessible ways you can start the practice, ways that start from just a few seconds at a time. We're going to dive into these techniques and more in this episode. Aura is one of the nicest people I've ever spoken to on this show, and I'm really proud to present this episode to you today. So let's get right into the episode with Aura Nadrich. Aura, welcome to the Freedom Park podcast. It is a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So we're here today to talk about this book. I read it recently. I really, really enjoyed it. And right off the bat, I want to address or debunk a stigma that I hear a lot surrounding mindfulness. And a lot of people might associate mindfulness or meditation with a religion. Um, you know, they might say, because I'm not religious, that this isn't for me, I can't benefit from it. But what would you say to those people with that attitude? I would say that's absolutely not true. And it's um, to no fault of theirs. It's just that when we're not aware of something, when we're not well informed or educated, it's very easy for us to jump to conclusions and jump to beliefs. And I think we really limit ourselves terribly by that because mindfulness is not religious at all. In a nutshell, mindfulness is the practice of being present. It's literally meaning that I am choosing to be in the present moment right now. So in this moment, I'm here with you, Lewis. We're in the present moment. We're about to have a conversation. And I'm choosing not to be in the past or not to be in the future. Now, tell me what I said in that explanation that is at all religious. <laughs> exactly. I love it. I think that is a you know, big problem. When you hear the words mindfulness and meditation, you often see it on uh, like TV, on a TV program, and they sort of hone in on the iconography of religion so it's is refreshing to hear someone like yourself uh sort of address that issue that i think puts a lot of people off to what is really quite a liberating practice it's very liberating that's a great word to use because really the practice of mindfulness just makes us more aware it makes us more aware human beings and by that i mean the more aware we are the more aware we are of ourselves which means our 
actions, our behaviors, our words, our deeds, etc. And then we become more aware of others. So we're more sensitive to others. And then you expand that even wider, it makes us more aware of our environment. It makes us more aware of the world. So really what it does is it heightens our awareness. And it's an incredible way to go through life to just be a more aware, conscious human being. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I think may deter people from uh, reading up on this practice a little bit more is they may think that every act of mindfulness or every act of med meditation has to be this grandiose event. They think that there's so much that goes into it, that's so much time. And there's a, um, it was a lovely article I think you wrote, was it in the Huffington Post, where you said that just making your morning cup of coffee or your cup of tea can be meditation. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, everything and anything can be a meditation. I mean, to the point where you could be washing dishes and you find yourself really slowly letting the water fall on the porcelain or smelling the aroma of the dishwashing liquid. So um, what I'm really saying is that I took a particular act, which is something I think that we can all relate to. For the most part, I think everybody at one point has a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. And if you don't drink either, make it a cup of juice or even a, a, a glass of water. And I, I took people into the understanding that when we are present, again, going back to mindfulness, we are in the present moment, which means we are in the moment with the very thing that we're doing. So I used the morning ritual of drinking one's cup of tea or coffee to not rush through it. I mean, we know that like here in the States where I am, there's a coffee shop on every corner. People run in, they order their frappuccinos or their macchianos or whatever, and they jump in their cars or their Ubers and off they go. And what I was saying or really suggesting is that sit quietly, you know, for a couple of minutes and really feel that cup of tea or coffee in your hands. Feel the warmth of it. What does it feel like? Feel it when you put it up to your lips, to your mouth. Feel the warmth of it pressing against your lips. Take the first sip of that tea or coffee. You know, you're in the UK, whether you're taking that first sip of English breakfast, do you know, or um, here, wherever you are, taste it. Let your senses come alive. You know, feel the warmth of it going down your throat. We waste so much time rushing through these things. And the reason why I think that article that I wrote for the Huffington Post resonated with so many people is that I wanted to say, you don't have to be a practice meditator. You don't have to sit in the lotus position and chant om all day. You know, you could be somebody who can go, hey, I can actually, in my ritual of drinking tea or coffee, really be in the present moment. And I am actually practicing meditation and I am practicing mindfulness. It is the art of being present. It's interesting because when I was younger, um, I used to listen to this one album by a, a local music artist, no one too big, but um, a very, very spiritual person. But I noticed when I listened to the album, I loved the music, but there was a lot of silence in there. There was a lot of gaps in the music. And I remember I had a conversation with the person who wrote it and I said, I love it. I said, what are all these silences? What are, what are they to represent? Why did you put them in there? And he said that you put them in there because he was trying to force people to meditate without even realizing it. 
And it reminded me of a metaphor I heard. I think I read it in a book by Jay Shetty where he talks about music and he says that the beauty in music isn't the notes themselves. It is the space between the notes. Um, And I thought that was a, a fantastic metaphor. So do you think that in life then we need that silence, we need that stillness between the notes or the things that are happening in our lives to truly appreciate the beauty of the music or life, if you want to complete that metaphor? Absolutely. And that can also be applied to the space between our thoughts, do you know, because we usually have thoughts in quick succession and we think between 40 and 70,000 thoughts a day. And it's not that we're cognizant of all the thoughts, but for the most part, we're the effect of the thinking mind. So we're very much at the effect of the activity of the mind or a Buddhist term is called the monkey mind, which is the restless mind. You know, you think of a monkey jumping from branch to branch on a tree, rather restless. That is really how the mind functions most of the time. So I really encourage people to pause, to take a moment. You know, when people say to me, oh, or I don't have time to meditate, And as a meditation teacher, which is one of the things I do is I teach people mindfulness meditation. I've kind of taken meditation out of the equation, if you will. And I say, do you have five minutes to sit quietly? And they say, well, yeah, actually I do. And I say, how about just sitting quietly and allowing yourself to do nothing, to be in the art of being as opposed to in the art of doing, where in the most of the time we're busy doing, we need to learn how to be comfortable in the space between, as you said, the space between music, or as I say, the space between our thoughts, and to learn how to drop in and really embrace the silence and find great beauty in that because there is great beauty in silence. And if you want to just, let me take it one step further. If you want to really bring in the religious aspect to it, not that any of this is religious, but if you ask somebody that is in fact religious, what do you feel when you pray? Where do you go when you pray? Do you go someplace silent within yourself? Do you know, these are very important questions to ask ourselves because that type of silence is a sacred silence whether it's in a religious context or it's in a spiritual context. So I want people to learn how to be more comfortable with the silence. In the book, one of the big um, phrases you use is this idea of to live authentically. What do you mean like by that? And can you define that to our audience? Well, authenticity as we know it from its most basic definition is genuine and real. Do you know? So, If we ask ourselves, who am I in this moment? Am I being genuine? Am I being real? Am I being true to who I really am? And the reason why I coupled mindfulness with authenticity is because, yes, we can show up in a moment. We can say, oh, hi, hey, I'm here. But who is the person that's showing up? You know, are you distracted? Are you being somebody that you're really not because you feel you have to be that to this other person to be accepted by them or to be loved by them? You know, oftentimes we're so many things to so many people that we forget to be true to who we are to ourselves. Mm -hmm. So authenticity is your true essence. It's your soul. It's your heart. It's your inner guidance that tells you who you really are and that you don't have to be anything other than who you really are. You know, that is, to me, the epitome of authenticity. There was a, a quote in the book that I wrote down but here. I think it was one of the notes to self. And if I read it out, it says, now is the most real moment there is. I live in the moment of now. 
why is it so important to live in the moment of now? And does that apply even in uncomfortable or less than desirable circumstances as well? Very good question, because the moment of now really is the only moment that there is. Because if you think about it, if we're in the present moment, what other moment is there? And without getting too abstract or existential or philosophical, if you will, and I don't want to really make it just about that, I want to simplify it, not to dumb it down, but to really have people understand the simplicity of these practices is that when we are in the now, we are in the present moment. We're not in the past, which has come and gone, and we're not in the future, which is not yet here. So what's the most real moment that there is? This moment. And to acknowledge that, to take note of it and say, I am in this moment right now and I'm most alive in this moment, what that conjures up is the awareness, again, going back to awareness with mindfulness. And it also really evokes gratitude because it makes you acknowledge that you are one more moment alive. Could you give our audience maybe a, a quick practice or something they can do to work on living in the moment of now? Something they could do. Maybe it takes five minutes. Absolutely. I mean, like the things that I said, you know, drinking your morning cup of tea or coffee. It doesn't have to be morning. It could be afternoon, evening, whatever. Any practice that you do, even taking a walk. When you take a walk, you know, don't be on your phone. Pay attention to what's around you. Pay attention to the trees. Is the sun out? Is it overcast? Are you hearing sounds of birds? Are you hearing crickets if it's late at night? Can you look up at the heavens and watch the glistening of the stars? And I also have a really simple breathing exercise that I love to share because it takes less than a minute. So I'm going to share that with you because your listeners can literally try it out today and go, hey, I just did a little breathing meditation. And basically what it is, is it's, you can keep your eyes open or you can keep, keep your eyes closed. And I just ask that you take a deep breath in and in your inhalation, count silently to yourself. One, two, three, four, one. Let your breath out and on the exhalation, count one, two, three, four, two. Take another breath in and count silently. One, two, three, four, three. And on your final breath out, count one, two, three, four, four. Now I've done this hundreds of times. It takes less than a minute. What does that do? It puts you in the present moment. It connects you to your breath. It calms you down. It brings you in present moment awareness with what you're doing. And what I really want to share with your listeners is how easy was that? So easy. So I, I just, I was following along there and I was I felt <laughs> in a state of relaxation already. And that, that's where I love this, the practicality you've brought there. And, and that's one of the things that stuck out to me in the book is it's not just the information is full of these techniques. I think it's a fantastic way. And like you said, they, some of them take less than a minute. They do. They really do. And all you have to do is just be available and just show up for that moment. You know, really to acknowledge that I'm in this moment. What, what, do, what do I want to experience in this moment? What do I want this moment to be about? And, you know, really to also go back to, because this isn't all just bliss all the time. You know, life has its ups and downs, and we know that. And we're in a very challenging time 
right now as we know globally. So what I want to say that even if you're in a difficult moment and you're having a challenging moment, be aware of what you're feeling in the moment. You might say, oh, I'm feeling really anxious right now. And even doing something like that breathing exercise can really help ameliorate that anxiety. Do you know? So when you show up in the moment, be it a beautiful, pleasant, even blissful moment, that's great. But I also want you to know that there are things you can do to stay connected and to even calm yourself down when you're in a difficult moment. Because there will be difficult moments for sure. One of my favorite things or topics to read about is um, stoicism, stoicism philosophy. And one of the things they talk about is this idea of the, of the past and not spending time dwelling on the past and only to spend time dwelling on the things that you can control, the things that are actually happening. And you know, there's a chapter on your book about the past, in, in your book about the past. And I think it's a big problem for a lot of people today where they let the events of their past sort of trap them and they become sort of slaves to their past and it plays on their mind. But why do you think it's so detrimental for us to cast our mind back and think what could have been? Well, think about it. You're trying to redo a time frame that doesn't exist. Hmm. I mean, just let's try and be logical about it. Do you know, we can't crawl back into the past any more than a snake that sheds its skin cannot crawl back into its, its skin. It is shed it for a new skin to grow. Do you know? And living in the past, I think in many ways, keeps people very stuck in it. And for a lot of people, it's an excuse to use, to not get on with the present and to really embrace the present. So they're really busy lamenting or begrudging or trying to redo in their mind over and over again, like, well, I could have done this and I could have said this. And if only this had happened, I would be this today. This is a waste of precious time. Do you know, we spend an inordinate amount of time in two time frames, the past and the future. And we are most uncomfortable oftentimes in the present. And we're never going to get these moments again. They're going to be gone. And you don't want to wait till the latter parts of your life when you wish you hadn't wasted so much precious time in the present. Mm. That's interesting you say that. We spoke maybe a year ago now to an author called Bronnie Ware, who wrote a book called The, the Five Regrets uh, of the Dying. She, she was a palliative care nurse, and she spoke to people um, who were on their deathbed about their regrets. And one, one of the main things she talked about was that you know they regretted spending so much of their time uh, dwelling on events that already happened. And so my question would be is, how can we, for those people who are stuck in that mind frame where they're always thinking about the past, what is the best thing they can do to move forward and leave that behind? Is there a case of doing those practices we've already talked about and living in the now? Yeah, and having an awareness, you know, I have my first book called Says Who, which is a cognitive method for transforming negative and fear-based thoughts. And it's a really good book to refer to because it gives you actual, you know, seven questions to ask yourself when a thought comes up. It really doesn't serve your well-being at all. So if somebody's aware, let's say that their mind is drifting into the past and they're trying, you know, they have resentment towards something they wish had gone differently, where mindfulness comes into play, which is really helpful, is it's having the awareness like, there I go again, I'm starting to get out of the moment, I'm starting to go back into the past. And when you have an awareness of that, you can say something to yourself to the likes of, you know, let me bring my focus and awareness back to the moment that I'm in right now. This moment is important to me. This moment matters. I don't want to waste this moment by 
you know, letting my mind wander to a time that no longer exists. This is the beauty of mindfulness. Mindfulness catches us really quickly when the mind starts to wander. And according to research out of Harvard, our mind wanders almost 50% of the time. So you have to ask yourself, where is my mind going? Do you know, it's going into the past and it's going into the future. So it needs our help. And mindfulness is a great practice to, you know, you could even be humorous about this with, your, with yourself. You can say, oh, there I go again. I'm starting to worry about what might happen later or what I'm going to have for dinner or what's going to happen tomorrow or I'm worrying or lamenting or begrudging how my past is going to affect my present. So I really advise listeners to catch yourself. And by the way, one of the descriptions of mindfulness is, being in the present moment with total awareness, self-acceptance, non-judgment. And what I like to say is the cherry on top of the Sunday, self-love. So when you find yourself slipping into the past or worrying about the future, just gently bring yourself back into the moment. Gently bring yourself back like a friendly reminder or note to self like I have in my book, like, oh, Note to self, I'm wandering. Where am I going? Why is this moment not enough for me? What moment do I think is going to be better than this moment? And even if this moment is difficult, let me move through it with awareness. Do you know? And think of ways in which I can help myself move through it better. I love that. It's got me reminiscent of maybe two years back when I first started looking into meditation. And the first thing I did to really get into it. And all I did was I started off and made myself sit down with my back against the wall for, for two minutes, close my eyes and just stay in the silence and every and focus on my breath. So I just, not any specific breathing pattern, I would just think and be aware of the rhythm of my breath. And I try and focus on that. And it was surprising how quickly your mind can forget about that and go somewhere else. And then it was just a case of going, oh, okay, right, let's go back to the breath. And then it would slip away again. And that is the, the first thing that really got me into meditation. So I turn the question over to you. I'm just curious, personally, where did your journey begin with meditation? My journey began with meditation. I was very fortunate. And I feel that my life journey has been very synchronistic. Like things have presented themselves to me just at a time when I was ripe to accept it. And when you stay open on the life journey, and you want to learn and you want to evolve and you want to grow, amazing things can come into your life if you stay open and you allow for it. So I actually was an actress for 10 years and it was a pretty stressful uh, you know, uh, world in that world. And I got introduced to Transcendental Meditation, also known as TM. And it's a mantra-based meditation that originated in the East and it's a Sanskrit word that is given to you that you say silently to yourself. So like the breath with mindfulness meditation, what that does is in meditation, when the mind wanders, you bring your focus and awareness back to something like the breath. And for me, when I was introduced to transcendental meditation, I would focus on the, the Sanskrit mantra. Well, once I started practicing this meditation, I was quite young, it just changed my world. I thought this is the greatest thing ever. I would sit myself down for 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes at night and I would meditate and I would see the results and how it was changing my life and it was decreasing stress levels and it was making me feel so much more present and so much more alive. So that was really the beginnings of my, mind, my meditation path. 
Um, I went on a deep psychospiritual journey for many, many years. I had a sister that was afflicted with mental illness. And uh, when she became ill, it just turned my world upside down. And it took me on a really deep journey to find out more about the workings of the mind. And my life really became committed to understanding what transformational thinking is all about and how our thoughts affect our lives. So it was my journey. I decided to, you know, go off of acting. I was a writer, I was a screenwriter for a while. And then I just devoted my life to wellness and all the modalities and the techniques that can help us become more conscious human beings. And that's how I got into becoming an author in the area of mindfulness. Mm. It's interesting when you were talking about TM, they reminded me and our listeners will remember um, maybe a month or two back. Now I interviewed two monks, uh, Gorgopal Das and Garanga Das, and they were both talking about their uh, journey with meditation, similar practice to what you were talking about there and telling me how it, how it impacted their lives when they were younger. What were the main things you noticed changed within you when you started meditating? What were the big changes you noticed? I think for me immediately, it really connected me to something that I now know many years later because I've devoted my life to the path of awakening mm -hmm. and self-realization is that I was connecting to something that can be called oneness, unity consciousness, you know, divine presence, whatever you want to call it. This is a personal understanding, you know, you know, from a Buddhist term, it can mean reaching samadhi. It's like reaching that self or non-self state where you really are one with everything. There is no separation. So I would have these experiences that were almost ineffable. They were hard to put into words. And what was happening is that I became so present through the practice of meditation, through breathing and allowing myself to stay open in the practice that I would experience these extraordinary things that not only just the sort of scientific proven aspects of what meditation does, it lowers your blood uh, pressure, you know, it makes you sleep better. There's a lot of health benefits to meditation. But what I initially remember was sitting there in meditation and feeling something that I knew was so amazing. And that was it for me. Like I knew that there is something that we can achieve, that we can realize when we let go of our fear and when we surrender to not being in control or over-identified with our identities or our personas, and we really allow ourselves to be so present that we can really experience high levels of awareness and higher levels of consciousness. And once I glimpsed that, once I experienced it, I, I was devoted to the ongoing journey of awakening. Going back almost two years ago now, um, me and my best friend, we were on a trip in Nepal. We were doing the, the Mount Everest base camp trek. And I think we were a few days into the trek and, you know, the eight hour days of, of continuous walking, you know, with a head, you got a bag on. And I just remember I started to, I was starting to moan. I was starting to be a bit miserable. And um, my friend turned to me, he said, look, look where we are. Like, why are you, why are you moaning? And I said, like, I can't, I'm in my head. It's, you know, I'm, I'm stressed because of this and that. And uh, he said to me at the time, he said, right, he said, you need to calm down. So he said, just focus on one thing. And, he, and he, looked, he pointed to a tree and he said, pick out one leaf on that tree and just stare at that for a minute while we walk. And I started doing that. And 
as we were kept doing the trek, I kept finding little things, so like a rock that I would focus on, or you know, an animal that I would focus on. Is this an example of what you call in the book life gazing? And if so, what can life gazing do for us? This is a great story. That's beautiful. My husband and my son also went to Nepal, and I that that's an amazing place to be. I have not been, so it's exciting to know that you were there as well. And I love the story that you share because that's also a story that to me brings up the way in which the mind takes over and going back to the monkey mind, you know, where the mind goes, oh, this is so hard. Oh, I can't do this. Oh, this is so stressful. You know, it starts to create a narrative in our mind. And what happens is we give up or we surrender to that narrative. And you could have easily just stopped your journey and said, I don't think I can do this, but you, you, forged ahead and that's the beauty of transcending the thoughts that are in our mind that want to undermine us reaching our goals so life gazing is something that i introduced in the book because yes you know focusing on a leaf on a tree and i'm a big fan of life gazing because when we look around us and we look at all the extraordinary beauty that is around us, and it can be something as simple as a leaf on a tree or the way in which a breeze is causing that branch to undulate, or it could be the birds flying across the sky. Or for me, I mean, I've got a big window in front of me, which I look, I life gaze a lot. And that can be where when you're indoors and you're looking outside or go outside and literally just look up at the sky, watch the clouds moving across the sky, which is something that's very metaphorical to meditation, by the way, because in meditation, what is said that when the thoughts move through the mind, rather than to get attached to a thought, think of thoughts like clouds moving across the sky. So life gazing connects us to something greater, more beautiful, more expansive than just a thought that we get attached to. And I highly recommend it. And I think the way in which you shared your story shows you that you, in fact, diverted your attention off of self, you know, and kind of the concerns that you were having, which is the mental looping of the mind. And your friend, which is wonderful that you had a part, you know, partner with you at the time, they could say, hey, put your attention over here. And that can change your entire experience in a nanosecond. Do you know what I mean? I mean, literally, you can your whole perspective gets changed. Yeah, I would honestly, I would recommend the technique to Evan. It's something I do on a daily basis now. It, you know, if if I'm ever feeling stressed or worried, or I'm or, I'm, or I find myself moaning or being negative, it's the it's the one thing I always turn to. I think it's an absolutely amazing practice. Yeah, life gazing, and it's something everybody and anybody can do. You know, go outside feel the grass under your feet, go walk on the beach, go take a hike, smell the air, you know, look at a leaf. I mean, it goes on and on and on as to what we can do to get outside of our heads and get outside of that negative looping that the mind tends to go to, you know, just shift your perspective, move it elsewhere. One thing I would love to ask you, um, for the youth out there, actually, I think this is probably a big problem for them right now. I think, you know, the world at the moment is moving so fast. Um, it seems that young people are getting older, um, you know, and they're looking towards the future. Everyone's saying, you've got to have a plan. You've got to look towards, you've got to consider this. What are you going to do? Where do you see yourself five years from now? And 
you know, it'd be quite easy of me to say, don't, for, you know, just forget about the future, but that, that's not probably not a, sen a sensible approach. So what is the ideal relationship we should have with the future? That's a good question for, especially for the, for the younger gens, you know, like what does the future look like for you and not look at the future with something of worry, even though we're living in a unprecedented time and there's a lot to think about and the world is changing very quickly. I think we know that. I believe that this is a big shift that's happening globally and that it's a great time for personal transformation. So as far as just like, you know, literally getting practical as far as how am I going to pay the rent, you know, or her families that are thinking, how am I going to put food on the table? I think what's really important is that asking yourself and going back to the authentic self. I mean, there's nothing wrong with getting a job because you need to pay the rent and it might not be what's calling to your soul, but whatever you think of doing moving forward, ask yourself if it really does call to the authentic self is are you compromising? Are you doing something that you don't really want to do? And if somebody listening was, were to say to me, I, I understand that, but I have to get a job. I have to pay my rent. I would say, okay, I get that. Then go and get a job. But think about moving forward. Where do you see yourself? Where do you see yourself being in a way that really can express your authentic self in the best way possible? What do you think you have to offer? What do you think your purpose is in this lifetime? And I'm not saying you have to do something grand or huge, like come up with the cure for cancer, although that would be pretty great. But each and every one of us is unique. Each and every one of us is special in our own way. And what you don't want to do is live the life of unhappiness or inauthenticity. So you know, ask yourself those questions. It's very important to have self-inquiry. It's very important to say, who am I? To ask, who am I? And what do I think I can do? Where do I think I can give of my energy, my intelligence, my truth in the best way possible? That I can not only make a difference in my own life, but maybe I can make a difference in the world. You know, if each of us lived that way, imagine the energy, the energetic that we, we would be putting out on the planet. One thing that we love most on the show is practicality. And that's why I'm enjoying this conversation. That's why I enjoyed your book so much. And one of the, the sort of practical tools in your book you mentioned is called mindfulness repair. Could you just explain what that is to our audience and, and how they can best use it? Mindfulness repair, I think, is so helpful because, you know, there's a great, great quote that I love so much by French philosopher Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. And it says that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And I think when we're aware of the fact that we are these spirits that are inhabiting this body, this is our vehicle, and that we're human. And to be human is, isn't Shakespeare said to err is to be human or something like that. Do you know, so we're gonna make mistakes. We're gonna, we're, there's gonna be blunders. We're gonna put our foot in our mouth. We're gonna say things that we wish he, that we hadn't. And in as much as I encourage everybody to try to really cultivate a mindfulness practice, which will help you become a more aware human being, a more conscious human being, but you're gonna do things that are going to, as let's be real, we're gonna say and do things that we wish we hadn't. So my example for mindfulness repair was really intended for 
you are talking to a friend and you're distracted and you say something really short or curt or maybe kind of rude. You're driving in your car and someone cuts you off and you maybe, you know, flip them the bird or whatever. Um, there are things that we can do to repair that. And the sooner that we catch ourselves not talking to a loved one with present moment awareness, but we're distracted. So we're not really like connecting with a loved one or you're hurrying to get out of the house to get to work and you're like, okay, bye, see you later. What does it take to just look into each other's eyes and go, you know, see you later, have a great day, love you. And so people get on the freeway and they're so unconscious to how unconscious they just were. What I propose is that we catch it. And so let's say you get on that road to get to work and you were really unconscious to your partner in the morning. Mindfulness repair means you acknowledge that you were not present with somebody, whether it's what you did or what you said or how you acted or how you behaved. And then you find yourself at another time to circle back, to say to them, hey, I'm sorry I was rude to you this morning. I was really in a hurry. Or, you know what, I thought about the way I talked to you last night, and you know what, I wasn't really listening. I was so busy talking that I wasn't really giving you the respect that you deserve to listen. And what this does is it's a, it's a repair, if you will. And the person that you do this with more often than not is going to be really touched or taken by you taking the time to do that and go, wow, they care enough about me to circle back around to go, hey, I was really being foolish. I was being an idiot or I was being insensitive or whatever. Do you know, the more we do that, the more we're helping ourselves become more conscious human beings. And that's the goal, I feel, for us to become more, more conscious human beings on this planet. There's a quote you use in the book um, that I love by Socrates that says, the unexamined life is not worth living. You mentioned a framework called the house of self. Can you tell us a bit more about this and how we can go about exploring it? You know, the house of self means literally the house of who we are. And that requires the inner journey, do you know? And we can go back and sort of connect the dots from the beginning of our conversation to the end of our conversation. And really what that means is to get to know yourself better, to be unafraid to go within, to be unafraid to basically stand naked with yourself. And I don't mean disrobed. I mean, if you want to take your clothes off, that's fine too. But it's getting to know who you are fully. And I'm talking about the inner self. And that means maybe aspects of yourself, which Jung called the shadow. Those are aspects of ourselves that we may not like so much about ourselves, but we're willing to look at. So the house of self to me is like really getting to know who lives within me, who lives within my being. What am I all about? What are the thoughts that I have? What are the beliefs that I have? You know, how, how do I get to know myself better? How do I get to become more familiar with myself? And the quote by Socrates, the examined life, you know, is really incredible because, you know, it's like also with Carl Jung, you know, he really encouraged us to look within so that we become more awake, do you know? And that is called the inner journey. So I highly recommend for people to become more reflective, to become more meditative, to become more contemplative, and not be afraid to get to know yourself better. You might be pleasantly surprised at what you find out about yourself. 
There's one thing I'm, I'm sort of dying to ask you on a personal level, uh, as it's probably a big weakness of mine. Um, and I'll set right with a quote, and I know I keep going back to quotes on the book, but that's probably a testament to how good the book actually is. The quote is, uh, mindfulness keeps you on top of your thinking mind in such a way that it becomes the gatekeeper to your thoughts. What are the best practices for overthinking or maybe negative thoughts that keep popping up in your head, maybe that hour when you're lying in bed before you fall asleep where all the bad self-talk starts rushing in, all the talk that's not serving you well and it's, it's bringing you down. What are the best practices for dealing with that type of thinking? Well, I highly recommend my first book called Says Who? How One Simple Question Can Change the Way You Think Forever. And I, I have to bring that up because there are seven pointed questions that we ask ourselves. One of them being, do I like this thought? Or does this thought make me feel better? Or, you know, does this thought work for me? I created seven questions that you can catch a thought right as you're thinking and going, no, this thought does not make me feel better, you know? Mm -hmm. And that I have a technique in my book called the release and replace technique, which I think is so extraordinarily simple and profoundly beneficial. Because if you can answer those seven questions that I have, you're laying in bed and your mind is just, you know, chattering away and it's telling you this and telling you that, and it's negative, okay? If you just stop and go, I don't have to believe this thought. This is just activity in the mind. My mind is just looping, do you know? And if I ask myself, do I like this thought? And the question that I ask myself comes up with an answer like, no, I don't. I can then replace that thought with its positive counterpart so easily. It's a choice, you know, we think that our relationship to the thinking mind is so complex, you know, like there's somebody thinking for us. We're not thinking these thoughts ourselves. And that when I introduced even my first book, I know your interview with me today is about my most recent book, Live True, but Says Who is really powerful because it, it has you understand that you have a say in the matter, that you can decide which thoughts you want to hold on to and which thoughts you want to let go of. You literally are in the driver's seat, do you know? So when people say, oh, my, you know, my mind, it's like, oh, my, it doesn't stop. It's taking me over. I can't stop thinking. You're basically just surrendering to letting your mind wreak havoc. And who do you think is in the driver's seat? Ultimately, it's you. But you have to be in control. And that means you have to be the arbiter or what I like to call the curator of the thoughts that you have. You know, this is a refining process and it also goes into the era of neuroplasticity because when you start to change your thoughts, you start to create new neural pathways. And when we create new neural pathways, we're really defaulting to new habits of thinking as opposed to defaulting to old habits of thinking. So I highly encourage people just to not, you know, I, I want to make it more simple for them, if you will, that A, I would very much recommend you get my first book, Says Who, try those seven questions. They are so user-friendly that once they become automatic for you, you're going to feel like you're some kind of like warrior, like you could, like, like this shield, like the gladiator. You're like warding off these negative thoughts that are trying to take you over. And you're going, to see, you're going to start to feel so empowered because you know that you can change any thought at any time and make it exactly what you want it to be. Amazing. Amazing. I can't wait to check it out. Uh, we've talked a lot about the book today. 
I have a few questions left that um, are non-specific to the book. I ask every guest that comes on the show. The first one is, um, we've mentioned this book today, Live True. It's going to impact so many people's lives. I know it's going to impact mine as I keep going back and referencing it. But I see you're sitting right now in front of a quite a busy bookshelf. Uh, are there any b- books that you could recommend that have had a massive impact on your life? Well, I'm very um, tremendously indebted to the work works of the great psychoanalyst Carl Jung. Mm. For anybody who's not familiar with Carl Jung, I would highly recommend you know getting to know his work. He was a revolutionary mind in the area of psychoanalysis to get to know oneself better. His work has changed my life profoundly. But there's a lot of other books, like for mindfulness, for example, there are so many great books. You can pick up a book by uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist monk, John Kabat-Zinn. My friend, Dr. Ronald Alexander wrote a book, uh, Wise Mind, Open Mind, and also one of my favorites, which is right here on my bookshelf, called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, Mm -hmm. which is such a little gem in that if you look at every moment with a beginner's mind, then you are so ripe to learn and to be open and to be expansive. Do you know, if we just think we have all the answers and we're, we just are know-it-alls, then we're never going to open up to a new moment as if it is the very thing that it is, which is a brand new moment. And I love to use the analogy of a lotus flower where the leaves are opening you know, or a lily, and then at night it closes. And our mind is the same way. Just keep it open, keep it expansive, keep it fresh, you know, and think of yourself as open to receiving new information, new knowledge to ripen your wisdom daily. We've talked a lot about practicality today, and we've talked, uh, uh, we've given a lot of examples and tools we could use, but I, I wonder if you could issue just one challenge to our audience to go away and try this week it could be life gazing it could be any of the techniques you mentioned today what is one challenge you'd like to issue to our audience for the week going forward you know i especially since you brought it up and i loved the way you shared your story in nepal try the life gazing you know try that do things this, you know, starting today where you get out of your head or step away from your computer, get off your devices, get off your phone, stop scrolling and look out a window or go outside and sit under a tree or walk on a beach or just take a walk, do you know? And I also want to throw one more thing in, in that's in Live True. As you know, I categorize three things, areas, if you will, that I that I created called are you a past dweller, a future chaser, or are you a present experiencer? And what we want to do is we want to try to develop the present experiencer in ourselves. So that's another exercise I think your listeners can try. When your mind starts to wander, you can say, oh, I'm being a future chaser or a past dweller. Let me bring myself back into the present moment and be a present experiencer and really get the most that I can get out of this moment. This is my moment, I wanna own it. Amazing, amazing. So for me, what makes my life worth living is having these type of conversations with people such as yourself, Aura, and putting them out there, knowing that even if they impact one person's life today, then I can go to sleep at night, and that means the world to me. So my question for you is for 
or a need rich? What makes a life worth living? It's interesting that you said that about yourself because I have a similar feeling. If I have, if I have touched one person's life, if I'm able to change one person's life, for them to connect to their authentic self, for them to realize that they are unique and they are special and that they are divine and that they are here for an important reason. If they came into this world for an important reason, their life matters, then I have done my job well. Then I feel that I've set out to do and accomplish what I had set out to do. It's interesting that you and I share that in common. Even if it's just one person, I feel that I have done a job well done. Beautiful, beautiful. And I know you have. Where can our audience connect with yourself, check out the book, maybe find you on social media? Orinadrich.com is really the best. I mean, uh, that's my website and you can connect to anything and everything about me there. Practically all my social media handles are my name, Orinadrich. I also have Orinadrich quotes on Instagram. If you want sort of a little bit of an inspiration for the day, you can check that out. But going to my website, I think, has a pretty well-rounded array of the work that I do. Amazing. I'll make sure that's linked in the description below. Aura, thank you so much for coming on the show and bringing the practicality. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. I did too. Thank you for having me. And keep up the good work that you're doing. As a young, I don't know how old you are, but you know, 24. whatever. Are you really? 24, yeah. That is fantastic. Good for you. Well, you're already on the path. You're already, the, you know, to be at that age and to do what you're doing is, is amazing. Oh, thank you so much. That means, that means the world to me. Oh, yeah. That's amazing that you're 24 and you've chosen this path for yourself. Wow. It's going to be an amazing journey for you. You know, it's really a journey of awakening. And mm -hmm. it, gets, it, it becomes much more extraordinary. It really does. So Absolutely. kudos to you for, for being courageous to take that journey. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Freedom Pact podcast. We'll be back on Friday, but until then, please consider subscribing to our healthy, wealthy, and wise newsletter for free of charge. There's no catch. There's no marketing. There's nothing involved. It's just value from us to you. That goes out every single Monday, and you can sign up now at freedompact.co.uk forward slash newsletter, and please, if you're not already, subscribe to our YouTube page youtube.com forward slash freedom pact where all these podcasts are available in video format thank you so much for listening we'll see you again on friday